Hey, it's Bon Appetit Foodcast, and I'm Adam Rappaport. This week, we have on contributing wine writer Marissa A. Ross. Been a while since Marissa has joined us, and she's talking about a big piece she wrote for our September issue of Bon App about all the things she is most excited about and maybe a few things she's done with for fall when it comes to the world of wine. After that, I sit down with Carla Lolly Music to talk about a very favorite late summer produce, corn. Uh, we tell you how to buy the good ears, how to prep them, and of course, how to cook with them. And there's a lot of talk about butter. But before we start, I just want to thank all the listeners who have uh, subscribed to Bon Appetit, the magazine. So many of the recipes we talk about on the show and the articles and the ideas start with the magazine, uh, and it allows us to do what we do. So if you want to subscribe, uh, that would be hugely appreciated. You can go to bonappetit.com slash get the mag. That is bonappetit.com slash get the mag. And you get a year subscription for like 10 bucks. And of course, you get a tote bag with that. Finally, quick note, Marissa being Marissa, there are a few curse words in the wine segment. So if you got your kids with you, put their earmuffs on. All right, here's Marissa A. Ross talking wine. Marissa A. Ross, welcome to New York. Thank you. It's nice to see you, Adam Rappaport. What'd you get up to last night? Uh, last night I drank a lot of wine at Pinch Chinese. Mm, I've been to Pinch Chinese. Talk about, I like that restaurant and I like their wine list. Could you explain what they got going on there? Yeah, definitely. So um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a food writer, so I'm probably like the last person that Stop. should be talking about um, the food at Pinch. But I can tell you that it's really awesome Chinese food, um, incredible soup dumplings. It's in Soho, <laughs> slick little yeah. like, narrow space. Totally, yeah. And they have a great wine list, um, a ton of natural wines. Um, Miguel, who does the wine there is a friend of mine and I, I met him on my trip to Greece that I was just on. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, um, and we became buds there. And so I wanted to make, go and like check out the restaurant. And, and then before that, I was at a uh, cafe ultra paradiso for like four and a half hours, like the longest oh lunch my of my life, but also the best. See, I can't do that. I don't have that stamina that you have. Like if I day drink, I'm done. I can have like a couple of like Bud Lights and aluminum bottles and like that's like my limit for day drinking. Otherwise, it's like I'm either going to day drink and not go out or if I'm going to go out, I have got to really pace myself. So here's the thing, and I tell this to everyone. It's all about maintaining when you're day drinking. What so does that mean? Basically, what I like to do is you don't drink a lot. You just drink just like a straight line like just n you never get drunk but never get sober you just kind of stay buzzed and that's the only way to do it that's my problem i'm i'm a kind of a fast out the gate sort of guy exactly that's the problem and you gotta I get very slow. excited i'm like oh i'm drinking and then all of a sudden i'm like clunk yep okay so you have a new piece in our september issue kind of like your fall preview what you're stoked about for the several months ahead we're gonna run through it in no particular order and get your thoughts on everything from bottles to glasses to regions First up, apparently we're not allowed to use the word funky anymore. Yeah, I'm over it, you guys. It's really I'm 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 done with funky. It's been it's been overused to death. Well, overused in particular for particular wine people. You're big into the natural wine thing, and I think that's where it gets used ad nauseum. Yeah, exactly. And it it it, don't, it no longer has a meaning. Like once upon a time, you could say something was funky, and maybe it would mean oh, like it's like funky as in like sly in the family stone or it's funky like you know i don't know but now it's sort of a catch-all descriptor that can mean um that you don't like it or you do like it like i've heard people i was at friedman's in los angeles which was a part of the september issue last year yeah or hot 10 issue yep. it, was a, it was the cover it was that yeah. cool basically a potato latke in a waffle iron yeah with it, the uh, smoked fish on top it's so amazing yeah. i love that dish um, it's one of my favorite dishes, but I was there and um, there was a customer that was wanted to talk to me about the wine list because I was helping them out with some stuff. And she goes, oh, then the wine list is all natural now. And I was like, yeah. And then she goes, that's really unfortunate because I hate funky wines. And I was like, OK, well, let's talk about what you mean by funky. Yeah, That's a pretty broad brush to paint exactly. the entire industry with. Exactly. And so I, I asked her what she meant by that. Like, let's figure this out. And she just really, she was like, they just all taste funky. I don't know. I just don't know. And I was like, hold on, let me pour you something that it is not that. I know that you think that you're, what you're talking about are, are faulted wines, like wines that have too much volatile acidity, too much bretomyces, too much of, you know, they're out of balance. I, let me pour you this mind clang, like red wine that we're serving by the glass. And she ended up buying like three bottles of it, her and her friend. Yeah. So like there's that side of it. And then there's another side where the wine shop I hang out at a lot in LA, Psychic Wines, um, that opened last summer. 
you know, I was in there and someone recognized me and they were like, oh, I want like something really funky. Like, can you show me what, and I was like, well, what does that mean to you? And she's like, I don't know, you know, just like really cool and funky. And I was like, well, what kind of flavors do you like? You know, or do you like acidity? Do you like things that are- Okay, well, let me ask you this, because I do think if to some people, when they think of natural wines and they're saying funky, they think of some of those wines that have a certain barnyardy funk to them exactly and that is a smell and that and i think that is a legitimate thing that some natural wines have much more than others Absolutely. so what would you use to describe those types i of would wine? just say barnyard barnyard okay you know and that can smell that sort of like wet hay yeah sort of smell that's caused by bretonomyces which is a a, a bacteria just throwing around the big words today, i man. know I, I can't help it well we just call it brett but basically that's just a wine that has a lot of brett and some wines do really great with brett um you know like there's certain red wines from the loire that the brett can bring out like really cool brambly like blackberry notes and stuff like that since starting at bon appetit um it's been a real focus of mine because i do focus on natural wines to make sure that the wines i'm putting in the magazine are as well balanced and as stable as possible and that's not always easy you know when you're working with natural wines because they don't have any preservatives in them so sometimes yeah they can be out of whack they can really they can be out of balance but you know what it's like that's the same thing with any wine like i i, I mean i see what you mean in terms of if something is not homogenized or this or that or processed it's going to be a little bit more alive and you're not you're not sure what you're going to get but i i think with any wine Unless you've had that bottle and that vintage before, you're never sure what you're going to get. Absolutely. So we've all been to restaurants. It looks good on the menu. The sommelier talks it up. You get it. You're like, oh, like this is not really at all what I Or it could I be expected. something. Yeah, or it can be. I mean, that happens to me where I, you know, I have something in France that is incredible, but by the time it gets to California, it tastes completely different. Hmm. You know, it just, um, it's kind of a roll of the dice. And the thing with why I want people to stop using the word funky is that by describing the things you do or don't like with actual descriptor, like descriptives that mean something versus funky which really is this vague thing now then you can actually get something that you that you want yeah closer you know? to what it is I exactly because then it's like okay i don't like i don't like funky wines okay i don't like barnyard i don't want my wines to smell like barnyard or like i don't want my wines to taste like kombucha i don't want yes. you know using real words <laughs> of real things so that people can direct you in a better way and get a bottle that you're going to enjoy more yeah we always say uh, talking to alex grossman our former creative director and he would in the world of design, he would say it would drive him crazy when people would say, oh, we just want it to look modern. And it's like, well, modern can mean 50 yeah. different things to 50 different people. Absolutely. You know, are we talking Bauhaus? Or are we talking 1970s? Or, you know, yeah. all sorts of- mid-century Yeah, modern. mid-century. Yeah. So yeah, try to be specific. And I always think that's helpful when talking to a sommelier is like, try to give them an example of something you do like and something, can we find something that's close to that so-and-so wine? Absolutely. Uh, that you know you're into. Speaking of wines you're digging on or crushing on, as you say in your <laughs> new piece- Wines of Central Europe, specifically Slovakia, Czech Republic, and Austria. I've drunk a lot of Austrian wine over the years. I don't think I've ever had anything from Slovakia or Czech Republic. Can you tell me about those? Yeah, so it's kind of it's really cool. Um, I just sort of got into these, and they're sort of now just making their way over here. The two that I really love, um, my favorite um, producer from the Czech Republic is Milan Nestrecht, and he does like just really cool, uh, like very interesting wines. I think that he's taking varieties that we do actually know. Like he has an incredible like Sauvignon Blanc that it just, it tastes completely different because it's from a, this very but, small region. What does that mean different? Because when I think of a French Sauvignon Blanc, a Sancerre Sauvignon Blanc, correct? Oh, yes. I know your favorite word. Sancerre. It has that sort of grassy, slightly crisp vibe. Totally. Uh, and I can smell it and I can taste it. How would this wine differ from that? These wines have like a lot more fruit, I think a lot more forward fruit uh-huh. flavor notes on them. And like, I just think his white wines, they kind of just remind me of like tropical 1970s style, like tiki drinks almost, oh, but cool. like with more acidity to them. And they, they're really exciting to me because they do have like some skin maceration. So they're, you know, they're, they're a little weightier than like, let's say a Sancerre, mm-hmm. um, you know, but they have these like great, great riper fruit notes, but they don't lean like ripe as in like you know, like a big California super tropical bomb of Chardonnay kind of thing, you know? I think they also have, uh, it, when you see a, how do I pronounce it? Nestaric? Nestrich. Uh, Nestrich. Ch- at the yeah, end. Yeah, I'm pretty um, sure there's a, I never yeah, said the ch Oftentimes the end, it is but... ch- um, but the labels are very distinct. Oh, um, yes. Kind of like cartoon party labels going on. Yeah, he has a lot of really cool labels. He has one that with like, that's just like covered with like the Queen of England, like just like little pictures of her face all over the place. I think and... when you see it, you'll get it. Okay, so that's, and is this, and also with Slovakia. Yeah, and um, so this is, that that's Strekhoff 1075, mm-hmm. and 
that's that wine is named after the the village that Zolt, the winemaker, is um, from. And I visited it in um, wow. Slovakia is a, quite a place, uh, I gotta say. <laughs> quite a place. It's quite a place. It feels like it, it's wild because it's like beautiful, but it's also like there's still like, like the speakers on all of the poles. Oh wow! Like so, very, you're kind of like Eastern Europe. Yeah, you feel you definitely feel like you've you've you you've gone into another world, and it's cool because he's working with a lot of varieties that you know we just have never seen or heard of before because they're in Slovakia, and and something that's really cool too about these wines is that I think that. After, you know, like the Cold War and stuff, like the Iron Curtain situation with like our, the imports and exports, we weren't getting a lot of anything from this region. So, But were the wines being made as much yeah, as they are now? Yeah, the wines were being made, but they were just made for personal consumption. Uh-huh. Now, though, they're actually able to, you know, send them on out. And it's great. You know, Jenny Lefcourt, um, who's here in New York of Jenny and Francois Selections, her and um, her associate Phil Sorrell have been the ones that have kind of like pushed these wines. And I think it's great because going over there, there's so many people that are making wine there and it's really cool to be able to explore a new region and you know because like i said how many carbonic like reds from the from you know france can you really have before you're like all right let's try something new and the and the uh slovakian wine the strekov is called yeah um, what in terms of grapes or varietals so a lot of them are actually um i found they just have these insane names i'm not even gonna i'm not even going to try to pronounce <laughs> them they're bananas but they'll be like it's like saint laurent though really mm-hmm. which is a another grape uh, he uses a bunch of stuff I do not. How about this, red or white? <laughs> I love both of them. Uh-huh. He, like His reds and his whites are really wonderful. I just had one at, while I was here. I had his Rosalia Pet Nat, um, which I'm not sure the grape on it off the top of my head, but I had it at you know, the Ten Bells the other night, and it just is so fun and beautiful, this like really punchy rosé Pet Nat. And, yeah. So Slovakia, Czech Republic. So just when we see them on a wine list, they're worth checking out. They're and definitely they're worth be checking different out. Different than what we've had before. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, they're still like in the natural style in terms of like their high acidity. They have a lot of um, minerality to them, like salinity. I know that minerality is kind of a vague word. I get that. That that kind of stony. Yeah. Taste, exactly. You know? Or like yeah. salty. Like yeah. there's like a salty quality to them, and they have great texture. Yeah. So it was really. I'm really excited actually about that region and what's going on there. Okay. Can we talk about wine glasses? Because yeah. I think for several years back before I came to this job, I was like, there was this notion of like, let's make wine less pretentious, more fun. And as, we, I, as we sit here drinking wine out of paper cups. Well, that's because, yeah, <laughs> that's all we have. But, um, and I remember at my previous job at GQ, I wrote some piece about just like old Italian guys drinking wine out of the little juice glasses, and you've got your $12 bottle or your cheap rose, and you're hanging outside in the summer on a, totally. little, a card table. And like, that made wine drinking fun. And I do think we had to sort of take down those barriers of like the Robert Parker ratings and Opus One and all that nonsense. Yeah. It's like, hey, wine should be fun. It should be enjoyable. It doesn't have to be expensive or pretentious. I've now gotten to a point where I'm like, okay, took that wall down. I'm like, I wouldn't mind some actual nice wine glasses in my cupboard, but I know I'm enough of a dingbat that if I buy the really nice ones, I'm going to break four of them in like the first two weeks. So what do you like in terms of nice but not too nice? I totally get what you're saying, and like like you said, I I'm, I'm on the same boat. Like I don't think glassware really matters as much as some people think it does. I'm fine drinking out of a paper cup right now. Like it's totally fine. Um, but at the same time, you know, especially for me as a as a wine like professional, or I like to pretend that I am. I guess. Do you um, have a card that says that, Marissa? A. I don't Ross, even have a card. Professional. I don't even have a card. I'm just like, mm. yeah, I drink wine, whatever. Um, you can find me on the internet. But don't Google Marissa Ross. You can actually, I think I've got that SEO down now. Okay. The Marissa, I used to have to have the A in there all the time because (laughs) uh, my SEO was not so good. But anyways, with the glassware, um, I have Zalt, I got Zaltos as a wedding present. Now Zaltos are like $60 a piece a piece like hand blown like beautiful beautiful super slim super yeah light beautifully balanced they're terrifying to drink out of like i love them they're beautiful they're great but have you broken any of them oh yeah i have i just i hit one against my couch and it couch yeah and it shattered and i was like (laughs) are you kidding me like i'm not that i'm not that strong i'm pretty small do you have a dust buster I no, I don't. Uh, so be good for that. Yeah, um, but so the Zaltos are really lovely, but they are really expensive, and I don't trust anyone with them. Yeah, because like my friends, I adore them, but not that much. Yeah, no, no, because I'm not gonna spend sixty dollars a glass. All right, so what so, is like what's a working man's Zalto? Or at least a, a yeah, nice so employee, but getting, not super rich. Yeah, I guess I, I beat around the bush on that yeah. one a bit. I'm very into the Gabriel Glass 
Glas. It's uh, G-A-L-S, I believe, is like the last yeah. name and on it. And you can visit Gabriel, G-A-B-R-I-E-L dash G-L-A-S. Wow, international.com. That's a really long website yeah, URL. Yeah. But anyways, But the glasses, um, they, they're, they're really beautiful glasses. I'm really about universal glasses. Like I don't think, I'm not into like using flutes for sparkling wine or, or changing glasses at all yeah. for red and whites and sparklings. So um, the universal Gabrielle glass glass is awesome because it's it's thirty dollars it's a little bit it's still an ex, it's still a nice glass yeah. but it's a bit weightier i feel more comfortable drinking it um drinking out of it and it's it just feels a little bit better in your hand like it's just like you can you can have fun you, it feels like you can have You're a little not bit more worried fun. the entire time yeah i'm not like freaking out watching a, like a hawk everyone being like where's the glass yes. like where is it where is it like who broke one who did it um so those ones are like my new jam and it's kind of like they're it's a little bit wider at the bottom than it tapers inward towards the top yeah just a bit can we talk about vermouth our mutual friend dave rossoff in la Big I was like, Ver- my dad, Dave Ross? Yeah. <laughs> David Rossoff, Rossi, <laughs> a.k.a. Rossi, opened a vermouth bar at some point a few years back. I feel like wine people are always trying to push vermouth on me as a thing. And I'm like, people in America just don't care about vermouth. I'm not uh, saying we don't drink it in our martinis, but as like vermouth yeah. as a standalone drink. So can, can you sell me on it? Because yeah, I'm not there I, yet. I'm, I'm happy um, to try to sell you on it. I think that may, this will go back to my, my maintaining that mm-hmm. I like to do when I've started drinking. What I really so the the vermouth that we have in the issue is the Partita Carrez Mousse M U Z and it's I'm pretty sure it's a blend of a bunch of different uh, red grapes but I could be wrong on that so I apologize. Very distinct bottle. Yeah. Kind of bulbous with big M U Z painted on running down vertically. If you like and they they do make a ton of wine as well that have similar labels. So where's it from? It's from Catalonia. Okay. Outside of Barcelona. So explain to me vermouth. I, I say, let's say I know nothing about vermouth. It's made from grapes. It's made from grapes. Yeah, it's basically a fortified. It's basically like fortified wine. What does that mean? So that means that they make it. It's like it's like wine, but then they add grape liquor to it. So like usually oh. like brandy. Okay. Um, so but, higher alcohol content. Yeah. So higher. But even but what's cool about this this one and a lot of so a lot of natural winemakers are now starting to play around with vermouth. And what's cool about a lot of them is that the alcohol content is a bit lower. So I'm pretty sure that like the mousse is around. You say it says generally between 15 and 18 percent yeah, so whereas you, a typical wine is more around say 12 percent yeah totally yeah. and so what's what i really like about this is like during the summer especially this vermouth like over sparkling like with sparkling water and just some ice like in the backyard is just a great picnic for yourself see, like. I, see that interests me so you say three parts vermouth one part sparkling water or tonic Ice citrus wedge. I'm like, yeah. okay, I can get down with yeah, that. Yeah, it's like uh, to me, it's like just like somewhere between a cocktail and wine. And I don't really drink a lot of liquor because because you're drinking wine all day. Because I'm drinking wine, yeah, and because it, it affects me kind of way more. Like, a, the, like some gin will will excuse my language, but will, they'll it'll fuck me up. But I really do like cocktails. Like I like I, I like cocktails. I like the idea of it. Like I you love, like having a garnish. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, well, I like to mix it up. You know, it's like I'm always drinking wine. It gets a little, it gets you want to you want to spice things up a little bit or just change things up. And I think you that know that's, you, you know what you want you want ice. I you do, want ice in your glass. Absolutely. Which, but I'm not against putting ice in wine if you really need to do it. Like I'm not about no judgment. But what I like about this is that you can cool down with it. You don't necessarily get drunk on it. Like you can just have a nice like afternoon cocktail and enjoy yourself and just chill out yeah any noticeable difference if we're looking to buy some of these new newish vermouths by natural winemakers between white vermouth and and red vermouth i've only mostly seen red at this point okay interesting so yeah and it's kind of a slow thing but that's why it's in the september like preview issue i'm hoping that we'll be seeing more of it things that are starting to happen yeah 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 yeah. because it's um i don't really i don't see a ton of it yet i'm gonna give vermouth another try when someone offers me some some cool kid offers me some when i started here you wouldn't even drink wine and i I, we've made i would drink wine just not your natural wine it was too funky for me oh my well we've grown in leaps and Bounds. I know, I know. Because here we Baby are. Baby steps. Yeah. What are we? We're, we're actually drinking right now. It's um 12:34 p.m. on a yeah. Wednesday. It's in a New little. York. It's a little early. I actually have. I've had this label, this brand, this, this maker this before. Wine maker. So can we talk about? Because yeah. I, I, I know. I as with a lot of wines, especially in the 
natural wine world where we've gotten in spats about. Their their labels are very distinct, the artwork on them. Whereas sometimes if you go to Bordeaux or Burgundy, they're they're very traditional and they're sort of done in a certain way and you confuse one for yeah. the other. In the natural wine world, you're like, oh yeah, that that I like that wine, even though I don't know where it's from or who makes it. Totally, yeah. So um, right now we're drinking, the wine is by uh, wine winemaker Baraccio. It's brought in by Tess Bryant Selections, which is in my new favorite importer of this year. She has an incredible Australian book, which is where Baraccio is. And yeah, so it's not- Austra- She has an incredible Australian book? Oh, yes. Sorry. That was some industry talk. What, when I say book, I mean that she, um, that's like her portfolio of wines. She brings in multiple really great Australian wines. But so today we're drinking, and I haven't had this one before, but um, we're having the Battered Sav, and it's 80% Chardonnay and 20% Sauvignon. I haven't had this before. I haven't had this particular, um, this particular. Okay, if, all right. Them. Listen, I'm just gonna this one simple man's description of this wine. Okay, go for it. I feel like I could serve this to Marlon, and he would think it could be apple juice. If I put <laughs> it on ice with a little club soda in there, he would drink the whole thing. It's really good. And he would be acting like a maniac because that's how he acts most of the time, anyways. Yeah. But it's a very easy to drink summer wine, I would say. Is that fair I, enough? I think that's super fair. Um, it definitely sees some skin contact. It, mm-hmm. has, a little, it has a nice color to it, but yeah. it's not quite it orange. It has some tawniness to it. I would say it's it has a little bit of that sourness to it, but it's not, I wouldn't describe it as crisp. No, definitely not. The acidity um, on it is, um, it's more It's more wrapped up in these fruit notes, you know. Yeah. Um, the 80% Chardonnay um, is definitely where that like kind of tropicalness is coming from in the mm. 17. I believe is like what's bringing the acidity is it fair to say that what most of us i think american wine drinkers associate with shard is you like that shard that's what they call it yeah. in biz, um, yeah. <laughs> is the fact that it's aged in oak usually and we kind of taste that oakiness from napa or sonoma or wherever and yeah. that's what we think of when we think of chardonnay totally yeah i think that that's very fair i mean there was definitely a period in my early 20s where i was like i hate chardonnay it's the worst like i didn't realize that you know, it depends what you do with it. Yeah, exactly. Like so much of it, and that's and this is true for all varieties. You know, all all wines is that it really is in the hands of the winemaker and what they decide to do with it. So, and that's what's really cool about you know even Australia. They're they're doing a lot of really interesting in in Slovakia and and you know they're they're just doing interesting things with these grapes that you may think that you know, but you actually don't, and you get to see a new expression of. Can them. I ask you a question? Sure. Speaking of Chardonnay. The, the dominant white grape in the Burgundy region of France, yes? Yes, true. How often when you're out, do you just drink regular old-fashioned regular wine that's not natural, organic, or any of that? Like if I'm taking you to dinner, like, hey, let's get a nice bottle of French Burgundy Pinot Noir. Not often. Really? You're just like, well, what if you go to a restaurant and they don't have a natural wine Then list? I'm usually getting a Campari soda. Would you literally won't drink, like if I get a nice bottle, let's say I get a nice bottle of Nuit Saint-Georges, oh, like is, you're gonna 2005 or whatever a good year in Burgundy was, or 2012, it's a, it really, it you're really not going to drink it? it really, That's just dumb. I, I will try it. I wouldn't necessarily order that bottle for myself. If someone orders a bottle and someone says that they really like something and then they enjoy it, I will definitely try it. It depends on the it depends on the producer. It depends on the winemaker because there's certain conventional wines that are really well made. Like I don't want it to be like I don't want to say like you're kind of putting me in a position to look like an asshole. And <laughs> and, and um I I think that there are plenty of really really strong incredible conventional wine producers. Yes. But a lot of those bottles are things one I can't afford and two like I don't really have. No, but I'm paying for it. Yeah, if you're paying for it and you want to buy me like some baller ass bottle, like sure. And of course I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna drink it. I might not drink the whole bottle of it like I can this because this is 11% alcohol and the conventional wine you probably are getting me is maybe like is you know it could be a lot higher but I mean, I mean hey, if we got a nice light burgundy a red yeah, burgundy you yeah. could drink that I would yeah I love yeah. burgundy but that's also too like but those flavor profiles are already I just prefer lighter styles of wine uh, there's a there's a certain quality of freshness and aliveness in natural wines that you don't get in a lot of conventional wines and that's what I really look for because it's something and you know maybe me, this is me being like idealistic or and a bit whimsical but like for me it's something that I can really feel like I can just feel the difference in the wines and so if you serve me a wine whether it's conventional or natural and I feel something from it if it speaks to me then I will drink it but also too I don't think a lot of wines speak to me. There's a lot of natural wines that also don't speak to me. Yeah. Like there's also a lot of shitty natural wines. Well, I think, I think you know, that, like that's the thing about wine. We've talked about this before. Like the world of wine is massive, and until you're drinking something, you just don't know. And a lot of times, you have to drink a lot of different things to figure Absolutely. out what it is you love. Absolutely, and 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 quite frankly, I discovered natural wine very early in my in my wine 
career and it was what I decided to focus on very early on. So also too, like, I don't think I'm an authority to even be, like I couldn't tell you the great conventional winemakers to go and seek out because that's not what I personally have um, focused my work on. Um, speaking about what you like. Uh, I love that this is all about what I like, except yeah. that he had to make sure just to like dig in a little, a little bit. bit. In your article in the September issue of Bon Appetit, Entitled Care to See Our Wine Checklist. That's a play on Care to See Our Wine List. You get it, but we say ah, Care to See Our yeah. Wine Checklist. Gotcha, gotcha. A little play on words. I, I'm uh, like, I didn't come. I, I just saw that, that the, uh, I just saw the, the title of it today. I didn't actually know it. So the final point is Big is Back. And you write, no one's calling it a comeback, but bolder wines are about to hit your table again. Chalk it up to juicy, you're going to have to explain this word, but glau glau wines going mainstream or to climate change, but either way, expect more wines with higher ABVs, alcohol by volumes, and riper fruit. These may not be the best for day drinking. A lot of day drinking talk going on. <laughs> I know. But they're great for- I guess for, it's because I am here day drinking. Yeah, but it's for fall. So, But, but they're great for hearty meals and for tricking your dad into loving natural wine. So talk to us about what, in your mind, the conventional impression of- big wines what does that mean to most people and what does this new iteration of big wines mean to you totally so um i when i'm thinking about big wines i'm thinking you know napa cabernet you know bordeaux um, Barolo, these like you know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking Screaming Eagle. Yeah, exactly. I've never had Screaming Eagle. Uh, yeah, exactly. But I've read about it in Wine Spectator. Exactly, it's like Opus One. Yeah, like obviously um, big, big but, wines, like guys like on billions with the wine cellar. Exactly, with the big, big glasses, yes. like with the big Bordeaux glasses. Yeah, exactly. And I think that- You know what I hate? I hate those wines. I, they, they put me to sleep. They just like, I'm like, it's just too much. I don't need a 16% alcohol. Yeah. It's like, it's inky. It's like, you're eating with like short ribs and pureed potatoes and like, halfway through the meal my head's on the table well and that's kind of what really bothers me about like restaurants is like they'll have like these really beautiful delicate like menus and like dishes and then they're trying to serve these like huge huge yes. wines and i'm like these, dude in these giant balloon like burgundy glasses yeah, that can literally fit an entire bottle exactly i could fit in them um but so like going to like so you were like glue glue so glue glue is basically yeah, glue 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 all right explain that because that's a, that's a natural wine term that it's I don't a natural think the wine average term. folk throws around yeah so so basically glue glue is french for glug glug they're really low alcohol wines you know like they're 11 12 percent usually um chilled reds which we've talked a lot about over the last couple of years since i've been here at pa um because they're some of my faves these glue glue wines these like light um low abv chilled reds have become so popular a lot of these gamays for instance yeah totally just, yeah and you just throw them back yeah exactly or like even, glug, 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 yeah right? exactly that's yeah, exactly so a lot of wine has kind of like become that like that kind of became the 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 trend within the natural wine world right so now there's producers that are kind of like pushing back against that and are kind of like well let's like let's return to like some of these other styles like we shouldn't be abandoning you know everything for for just this one particular style i think someone that's doing it really well is um nick Couture of sonoma mountain winery He's making these incredible like Merlots and Cabernets that uh, in Sonoma that uh, taste unlike any Merlot or Cabernet I've ever had. Like he, I just had one of his Cabernets um, recently, and it had like these this like very interesting like pine notes to it. Mm. And it was like even though it was like almost fourteen percent alcohol, you couldn't tell because it was just like really well balanced. And so what's cool is that they're they're bigger wines and they have these um, bigger flavor profiles. But you don't just taste the alcohol because that's like my big thing. Well, sometimes I, you can smell it; the wine almost feels hot. Exactly, like it's exactly. Your nostrils are like woo. Exactly, exactly. So it needs to be in balance. Like that's really important. And then also too, so the climate change situation is that you know the world is just getting hotter. Okay. And how does that affect wine growing? So grape growing. Yeah. So when you're when you're growing grapes, um, basically the warmer the climate, the more sugar the grapes produce. Mm. And so the more sugar they produce, the more alcohol content they have because the way that wine, you know, in fermentation the yeast and the sugar come together and then they make alcohol so the higher the sugar content but also too that 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 just means that they're riper and bigger and hotter yeah. like literally hotter do quote-unquote big wines are they typically more amenable to aging y yes and no i mean you're talking I about like barolos and big napa wines yeah. like you can 
I mean, yes, it's it's hard to say though because it's like you, I guess in kind of like a traditional sense, you would yes, like a tra- traditionally, I think that you would I would say that that's correct um, because a lot of times it has to deal with like tannic structure and um, you know just or that they just need time in bottle. But as, particularly in the natural wine world, you really don't know if something can age or not. Because they're less stable. Yeah, because they're less stable. And I mean, there is a big myth that you can't age natural wine, which is totally wrong. Like I, like you can definitely age them. But but there's a difference between you can and what is typically done. Typically, it it seems to me that natural wines are drunk, drunk, drink, drink, drunken. Yeah. More quote unquote fresh. That they're they're closer to the 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 vintage that they are. Whereas a lot of times a Bordeaux, you can have a 40, 30 year old. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But a lot of times you can have a 30, 40 year old Bordeaux because of all the preservatives that's in it yeah so i I think that but with the climate change thing so basically also these winemakers are having to kind of you know they're having to make choices on um the or 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 they actually sometimes don't have a choice in the matter you know Mm -hmm. like when i harvested in italy in 2017 that was the hottest year that they had had in 200 years yeah they were um they had directly and that's why and that's i think things like that directly affect vintages and it's why one vintage is different or better than another and how much rain they get all those things makes a huge difference have an impact on the taste of a a wine for that year absolutely and then and that also affects like when the winemaker you know the the winemakers have to be very particular about like when they're picking it you know like in italy that year they had to start harvesting in august but it was also hard because a lot of people lost a ton of crop because of frost yeah. in, in hail that year. So, you know, these winemakers are having to deal with a lot of different um, changes that are happening in their regions. And a lot of them, um, the winemakers that I work with, these smaller producers, they have been making wine a certain way forever, you know, and they haven't had to deal with this stuff before. You know, it's like always kind of been the same. And now it's like the world is changing and their, you know, their wines are going to have to change and their winemaking techniques are having to change along with them. You're getting on a plane this afternoon back to L.A.? Tonight. Tonight. I had to change it. Yeah, I was supposed to fly out this afternoon, but then I had to change it because someone was in Canada. (laughs) Who was that? And you need to do a podcast. Um, Yeah. So when you're like on the plane and they come by and like, oh, would you like some Chardonnay or Merlot with your meal? What do you do? Absolutely not. So do you do you bring on your own? No, booze don't or? do that. I found out that if you do that, it's like a ten thousand dollar fine. Really? Yeah, it's crazy because I know that everyone's like, oh, like you should like just. I tried to do that coming back from France before. Like, oh, let's bring a little like cool sausages and cheese on, and we'll have a little picnic on the plane. And they're like, yeah, no, you can't. Yeah, do no. That. So yeah, it's a fair. Just so everyone knows out there, it's a ten thousand dollar fine so if you open your own alcohol on a plane. Unlike Andrew Knowlton, does this mean you never drink on a plane? I usually what. Uh, no, that usually too because I don't like flying. I generally will go with a, a gin and soda with yeah. lime. Oh, nice. Um, okay. Even though I said earlier that gin makes you crazy. Yeah, it doesn't make me crazy. I just said it kind of fucks me up <laughs> if I'm drinking a lot of it. But I mean, out of all the liquors to drink, or you know, like if I'm coming back from a wine trip, sometimes I, like a really cheap beer is great. Oh yeah. Yesterday I had a, a Stella. Artois. Oh, wow. I've heard of that. Yep, I had it. I drank it. Not only did I drink one, I drank two. Oh, my God. Because I was just like, I need a break from wine, and I just need like just something that's cold in this god Most people say, I need a break from wine, I'll just have like a club soda or a <laughs> glass of water. Versus no, because like, I w- I'll have a couple of beers. No, because I was maintaining. Oh, you were maintaining. I had to maintain. <laughs> All right, folks. Do do as Marissa A. Ross does and maintain uh, this <laughs> fall. Uh, Marissa, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Carla Music, question. Ask me. Growing up, were you one of those families at the dinner table where they would take the hot corn and roll it in the stick of butter? In fact, no. And the first time that I saw that was in a movie, right? Isn't it in Breaking Bad? Not Breaking Bad, Breaking Away. The the cycling movie. The cycling movie. One of the great films. A few youngsters out there have not seen it. A great, incredible. Great movie. I just I watched it with my kids recently. It so totally holds up. But wasn't it in there? I, wa- is- I have not seen that in a while. But I do know the first time I was at a friend's house and experienced it. I was at once like appalled and like incredibly intrigued. Oh I'm yeah. Like, Wait, you can do that? The first time I saw that, I was like why has this secret been kept from me my whole life? Because we were a uh, we were a softened butter, softened unsalted butter kind of a household. So, there so you was would always, leave the butter out? The butter was out. The that, butter was always out. That kind of freaks me out. I know. It freaks people out, but you, I guess we went through the butter at such yeah. a clip that it didn't matter. So it was so soft already. It was already just, room temp. So you would mm-hmm. pat, you would take a pat with your knife, and then your corn was hot, and then you would slather. But then when I saw that rolling it right into the- Stick. 
oh my god yeah and then there's another movie is it et what movie where they wow. butter <laughs> they butter a piece of bread and then roll the oh, corn yeah, like a little, on like the, a little like a little cozy blanket sort of thing yeah and that was like whoa but that just so, makes no sense because like if you're doing the bread why not just put the butter on the i corn? know that's like next level that's just showing shit. off <laughs> Do you want to talk about any other movies that came out like between 1979 and 82 or so? We yeah. Close Encounters or something? Sure. We just watched Meatballs right the oh, night before wow. my kids went to a Sleepaway. Yeah. Also, is that, sure. a, is that appropriate for kids? Uh, it's like 80s inappropriate, yeah. which is really benign for these well, days. Well, no, but there's like a lot of those movies where there's just like the random shower scene. Oh, there's also all these scenes where Bill Murray is like groping without consent his like female counselor. <laughs> 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 and it's the kind of stuff that like you can't tackle a girl as like a like a come on like that's <laughs> not cool. I'm just gonna change the subject to corn right now. Okay, corn season. It's August. Got to be all in at the moment. Uh, first of all, buying corn, if you can go to the farmer's market, what are you looking for when you're picking up ears? Um, the first thing that I'm looking for is all the people who are pulling the husks back so that I can like publicly shame them and tell them <laughs> not to do that. So that's one thing. I think you want to look for... This is just my big rule with produce. Just look at the stem end, man. The stem and the silks will tell you everything you need to know about the corn. So the stem should look like freshly broken off of mm, the stalk, okay. not dried out, yep. fibrous and wrinkly or like overly trimmed. So it should look fresh at the stem end. And then the silks that are coming out the top should be nice and silky, like a beautiful, you know, like Upper East Side blonde, you know? You're talking, you want Gwyneth Paltrow hair, yeah. not like mangy, like Woodstock <laughs> hair. Like, right. Because sometimes you see it and it's all brown and everything, and you're like, yeah. Is that, should I not buy this? If the word mangy comes to mind, yeah. you want to skip it. And then the other thing you... Um, the corn should still be cold, ideally. Like, I love oh. the stands where they are sort of throughout the day going back into the back of the truck and pulling the cold, dark and <laughs> cases why, why of is corn. That? Because um, corn, you just want to keep corn cold from the minute it's picked until you eat it. It just preserves it better, and it, it slows down the, I guess, the rate in which the sugars turn to starch and all that stuff. So places where they replenish the corn like as that pile goes down they go back up again and then for the husks really green not dried out taut Taut, shiny and you can feel underneath if the kernels are if there's gaps or if they're wrinkly you can just run your finger over the husk yeah so i mean they should be fairly big heavy Tight jackets tight jackets Gwyneth Paltrow hair (laughs) yeah exactly gp um Okay, I like the sound of that. Um, this is always an issue because we both have kids. I have an 11-year-old. You have a 9 and 15. and 9, uh, yeah. I think it is entirely the job of the children to husk the corn. Yeah. But I how do they do that without making a complete mess? You go outside. Go outside. And, go outside. And, and with like, is there any technique involved with so, husking? I was just saying the other day we were having corn. I was like, if you can't get the husks off in three tears, you're mm. doing it wrong. So I used to, when I was a little kid, I would like peel one yeah, husk yeah. at a time, like plucking a daisy. She loves me. She loves me not. Husking or shucking? You shuck know. oysters and you, you husk yeah. corn? Or you shuck corn? Um, okay, so what I like to do when I'm shucking corn is go up to the top and like pull as much of the green husk and the silks like as possible. Like a big, wide swath. Be aggressive. Yeah. Because otherwise you're peeling one yeah. and then one and then one. So, which I, I get, and I like that big, like grab a handful and just pull it, pull yeah. it, pull it. But then you, once it's shucked, husked, whatever you're calling it, you still have all those silk that's kind of hanging out. And I never quite know how to get rid of that silk. They're sort of annoying. They're like static cling. They like hang onto the kernels. Did you see what Christina yes. Che, so Christina Che, editor of, editor of, front of the book stuff here and everything at BA. She Instagrammed yesterday. She had, what was the brush she had? It's a Japanese like natural bristle vegetable brush, which I have those two that's kind of like in a horseshoe shape. Yeah. And she said she dry, she basically dry brushed the ear of corn 
Which is something my wife does, where you're supposed to dry brush <laughs> yeah. your skin to do Towards something. Towards your heart. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of goop, um, another, yeah. Wow, GP's getting a lot of run on this show. So, yeah, she brushed it and that removed all the silk. She said they came like, right oh. off. So, that's I know. pretty cool. I always, that's where you, like, does slow you down. And then I'm impatient. So, at a certain point, I'm just like, whatever. Any silks that are still left are, like, also coming to dinner. Yeah, no one's going to die. You're going to deal. The only, thing, the only thing you do have to remove. And I had this the other weekend when Cousin Tony was hanging out at our house. CT freaked out because there was like a little worm or whatever mm-hmm. in the very tip. I'm like, well, that happens because right. that means it's being grown on a farm. Right. And you just cut off that tip. If, yeah. if the tip of the corn is a little mangy or rotted or whatever, just yeah. cut it off. Yeah. Right? Sure. And the rest is fine. 100%. Um, also, just really don't be that person who's like peeling back the... If you peel back the corn at, at the, the market. market and then you decide, like, for whatever reason, you're not pleased with that thing and you put the ear back, no one's going to buy that one. Yeah. That's like taking a bite out of an apple and putting it up in the bin. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I hear you. But if you're like have a whole pile to choose from and then you're like, oh, I'll take the one that someone else clearly like rejected. Yeah. I also think with buying corn, we talked about this with you and Gabe uh, last month on the pod, like early in the season, like, in good in-season corn should be big and heavy and like I said those tight husks if you see corn that's kind of small and kind of the husks are kind of old that means like it's coming from somewhere else it's not it's not ready yet it's not ripe peak season corn just wait a few weeks yeah we're gonna get to actual eating of food but all right cutting the kernels off I disagree with the technique here. I don't disagree, but let's talk about the technique in the magazine this month's Bon Appetit. Yeah, you disagreed strongly. You can say <laughs> On it. Slack. You well, did. But I'm, no, this... and, and live, oh, also live. at a wall meeting. Okay, this one this one definitely <laughs> works. I just do it a different way. So talk about the way that we advise in the magazine in our August issue. Okay, so so like all things, we have described this in different ways over the years, but I think that that the Majority opinion these days is you shuck your corn and you put the cur- the cob down on the cutting board and then take your knife, zip down the side of it. Lengthwise. Yeah. Uh-huh. And just take off like a whole row of kernels and then roll it onto that flat side and zip them off again. So and you roll now it again. have flat sides so- to stabilize. Correct. I have also done it where wait, I-, I- Wait, can I-, like, can I get mine? Yeah, sure. I'm going to be like Ruth Bader Ginsburg okay. with, my, with my dissenting opinion. Point, counterpoint. So I get that. I think the first one, it could be a little wobbly and having to do like the whole length of a long ear of corn could be kind of challenging to be doing like lengthwise. I like to take, because we're taking the kernels off, I like to take the corn, cut it in half, and then take that half of corn and put it vertically, flat side down on the cutting board, and then just go junk, 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 junk. What I like about what you're describing is you create this really stable, flat base. Yes, and you're going down. And you're going as down. A, which is a natural cutting motion. And you've like made it shorter because yep. if you tried to stand, if you tried to trim just the base and stand, the whole, it could be wobbly. So the thing I don't like about that method is it's twice as much cutting, hypothetically. Yeah, but then you have but to if you do have a good knife, cutting's fine. The top half and the bottom half. I think True. the long way. Have you tried it? It's no, not, of course not. Oh. I just <laughs> criticize it. I haven't actually done it. Okay, well, if you can like slice a miche in half or like a loaf of bread, I, mean, I can't just... believe you just throw in the word miche like that's like what normal Americans say. <laughs> okay, but let's just say a loaf of bread. Just a loaf of bread. Yes, just, a large loaf of bread. It it it. They're not hard. It's not like you have to really struggle or push through. Like you yeah. just get the front of the blade in there and just zip down the side. Hey, you do you. But I used to do it where I stood it up on the stem without trimming the stem. And then it would be like, oh, teeter-totter. That doesn't work. No, no. And then I've also done it where I put a rimmed baking sheet with a small cutting board inside of that and then upended it and sliced down so that as the kernels fly off the sides and bounce, they would bounce into the rim sheet tray. Doesn't but then would, I started doing the sideways would do the thing. thing. Where people, someone has a large mixing bowl yeah. and puts a smaller mixing yeah. bowl upside down. Yeah, anyway. it's just like crazy. Okay, let's talk, to, talk talk food because let's start with loose kernels. So you've, you've de-kerneled your cob. Um, we have lots of we have lots of recipes that call for this. I don't know if we have one of this. I guess we do in BA. We haven't done it in a while, but. 
I remember years ago I was on a, re- a work retreat, and at lunch there was a caterer there, and they made a corn pudding from Silver Palette. Mm. And it was so good with, like, fresh corn, lots of heavy cream, some sugar, yeah. and, like, really naughty. My mom really loves naughty. a corn pudding. Oh, I was like, God, that was good. That's something, that was something I did not grow up with. And yeah. It was, like, a revelation for me. We do a lot of salads, though, at BA, right? We do. We do a lot of, like, charred kernels, lightly sauteed, and then combined with other things. And also fresh kernels. You can. Yeah. I like to do just take – if you have good, ripe corn – that's fine to eat raw, and I don't think people will realize that. You can just take that, some lime juice, some like a or totally. a, like a shallot vinaigrette, a bunch of cilantro, maybe a little like hard cheese in there. Yep. And there's your your corn salad. Totally. We have a we have one recipe that I really like that we recently updated, and it has I feel like lime juice and a chili and maybe a shallot, mm-hmm. and you char like a. Th- third of the I think kernels, it's mixed as part charred, and then you part, add yeah. that back in and that's nice just for like a little variation so check that yeah corn salads bon appetit lots of recipes on the dot com boiling corn i mean there's not real it's not that hard my only thing i, I find that most people boil corn too long yeah. if you have good fresh corn it's you're basically just getting it hot like i think steaming three- is the way to go Interesting. So, they, so yeah. how do you do that in terms of like space, like structural? Steamer basket and like because they're vertical, you can just stand them up in like in a really pot. deep stock pot. Yeah, like one of those, oh. you know, the way you would do asparagus or yeah. anything. So that if you have the expandable basket style steamer, and then you, there's five minutes. Yeah, three Max. minutes, yeah. five minutes. You're, you yeah. basically just want them hot. The only thing with steaming, and I guess this applies to sort of any vegetable, as opposed to quickly boiling, is that you. Quickly boiling, you can do it in rapidly salted water. Yes, you can. So the salt then infuses the corn with flavor. Steaming, totally. you're not getting that. No. And then True. you, you got to make sure it's salted at the table before you roll it in the stick of butter. For sure. Um, okay. RBG here again. I'm dissenting with the way you guys grill <laughs> your corn. I did it last night. And what, and what did you do? Walk us through it. So I don't think you need to shuck corn before you grill it. And I, I've done it all the ways. So I'm speaking from experience. Yeah, so I'm where are you at someone, now? What are you digging? What I'm digging right now is don't do anything. Take your corn that you got from the farmer's market, walk it out to your hot grill, put the corn over direct, medium, high, direct flame, and cook it, turning it, you know, roll it over onto its other side. Six minutes, eight minutes, I don't know. You want You want those husks to be nicely charred. So what's happening inside is that there's there's moisture in the husk, there's moisture in the silks. The corn itself has its own internal moisture. So as it's heating up, there's like a steaminess happening that's cooking the corn through, but also the direct flame that is also getting through all those layers of the husk will put a light char on your corn. And what it won't do is it won't get dried out or shrivelly or tough or chewy. Because it's not, it's insulated in there. So it's getting the benefit of the high heat, but also the protectiveness. And then when you go to shuck it, the silks literally fly off. So it's like a corn steam room. Exactly. I, be, I bet Goop would endorse it. It's better for the corn <laughs> But you sort of do health. get some light charring on the kernels. Do you though? Yeah, you do. Because I did it last night. And the, my own son, I was like, oh, you got some light browning there, didn't you, little guy? Hmm. All right, so here's where I'm coming from. I would I would enjoy that. I'm not saying I wouldn't, but if you're doing like elote, the Mexican style corn, where you take the grilled corn, you slather a little mayo on there, then some cotilla cheese, and you got your chili powder and everything, squeeze a lime juice. I like that where when the kernels themselves are somewhat charred mm-hmm. and brown, mm-hmm. and they had that caramelization, that smokiness. And to do that, you've got to sh- husk them first yes. and then throw them straight on the grill. I'm not saying that's bad. I think, that's, I think you are, though. No, I'm just saying- You, I you think, refuse, you use the words chewy and dried <laughs> out. Well, I think that's, the, you run the risk. When you put your, True. you put your naked corn cob on there, and it's got direct heat, they cook really fast. So I think if you're Paying attention, maybe there's a little bit. Do you put a little oil? Do you do any kind of fat? I don't. I don't think I do, but I do think, in order for them to not dry out, and I had done it before, where they've gotten a little chewy and stuff. I think you do want really high heat, 
so they're they don't have to spend that much time right. on the grill. Yes. It's almost like a steak. You want high temperature to get the outsides here and keep the inside yeah. medium rare. Uh, and the same thing with corn. You want that nice char done quickly. Take it off. Yeah. I think that's a good method if you're there. And I would rub a little bit of oil on it because that will help conduct the heat and get them to cook quickly without drying out. And then that's an active thing. You're paying attention. You're going to eat them right when they come off. You have to do a little bit of work up front to shuck them, right? The other method where you leave them in the husks and grill them, it's very forgiving. So I've done that like at block parties where I char everything and then kind of park the kernels you know, in like a gas grill inside the lid, sometimes yeah, yeah, there's like a deck. basket where yeah. you can like, and you can let stuff kind of hang. So you let the, you hang the, you, you, the cobs hang out there still in their sleeping bags. Yeah. And that way they're, they stay warm and they're not going to dry out. So, yeah. you and, know. And then do you then, when you serve them, you let the diner take the husks off themselves? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes right. we I pass like, like a, like a shop, like a brown shopping bag at the table. I know it's not no, classy. No, no, I, I do like that because I've had the. I had a few weeks ago. We bought some corn, and we didn't grill it because on the grill we had like one Weber, and we were grilling this and that, and we had like a bunch of stuff going on. So I was like, to Simone, I'm like, let's just boil it. So she had the pot of boiling water going. But the thing, what happened was we didn't have our timing in sync because mm. you're dealing with live fire, and something's taking too long to char. Or there's flame ups. You got to wait a second. So what happened was. The good farm stand corn was sitting on the table just naked, Ugh. boiled for 10 minutes before we actually sat down to dinner. So it had lost its heat. Mm-hmm. Still tasted great, but you didn't get that melty butter right. deliciousness. And you like, still put butter on it though, right? Of course. <laughs> but I do like that notion of like the grilled corn stays it's insulated, so it stays hot in the in the in the husk. So maybe it depends on your scenario. Maybe for a crowd, grilling in the husks has the benefit. If you if you have room on your grill if to you do have room that on your and grill. whatever else you're grilling, that yeah. I think with anything with grilling, we've talked about this a lot. It's just so much of it is timing and planning. Totally, it's like how much grill space do I have? What's the timing on the various things I want to grill? Not everything come out hot at the same time. No. Oh, and one thing with elote, I'm all for like you know, cheating and adjusting. Like if you don't have cotilla cheese, I would think parmesan works good. Sure. You know, so yeah. you do something, something sort of sharp and salty. Yeah. It's a similar effect. Are you a person we have on our one sheet page in the August issue, we have four compound butters, I've AKA, seen them. AKA flavored butters. Are yeah. you one to do that ever? I'm not opposed to doing it. I have done it. <laughs> I like it's very Martha 1990s in yeah. a good way, you know? Yeah. I, I like it, but do, am I going to soften the butter and then mix in the basil and the lemon and this and that? Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I would do it. This one, we have a few. We have uh, like half cup finely chopped tender herbs, such as basil, lemon zest. You know, we have a harissa mint one. That yeah. sounds tasty. Parmesan with ground pepper and then a miso sesame butter. You know how some people do like um, Bloody Mary bars? Oh, yes. Like if you were doing like a corn on the cob bar, oh, so you have different that would be flavors. a nice array. How cool would that be? That would be good. That's you, a good party and trick. The, or, and you can either have them in little bowls or you can do that thing where you roll them in like saran wrap or whatever, put them in the fridge or freezer to get them hard and then you slice them into little coins what if you made them into rectangular like butter stick shape and everybody could roll roll their their own own. (laughs) roll your own and on that note carla music thanks for joining us to talk about corn thank you the bon appetit foodcast is produced by carrie polis and christina che and produced and edited by emma wartsman our theme music is by nathaniel wartsman We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.